This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. Our topic for this episode is about expanding artificial intelligence deployments in the enterprise. Whether you are an internal AI or innovation leader, or whether you are an outside consultant, being able to take a small pilot project and actually turn it into something that's a deployment, turn it into a genuine initiative to build real AI capability is hard. Many of you who have experience with AI have already seen pilot projects flop, have seen initial ideas turn into kind of little AI toys that actually never make it any further. And our guest this week actually drops a quote, which he then backs up with a lot of real world experience where he says something akin to land and expand doesn't work. What does that mean? Well, as it turns out, being able to take an initial project and actually roll it into momentum, really turn it into something that an enterprise can commit to and and turn into a real deployment and something that makes a difference in their business is awfully challenging and requires buy-in from the top. Uh, Our guest this week is Corey Jansen. Corey is the co-CEO and co-founder of Alta ML. Alta ML is less than four years old, and they have well over 100 employees uh, based in Canada, Uh, Many PhDs, AltML is an AI services company working in insurance and a number of other large industries. And Corey has a tremendous amount of experience taking a small team, using that team to find AI opportunities, and turning those opportunities into something substantial to really build capability in the enterprise. Corey learned a lot of hard lessons around how smaller projects can end up in a dead end. And again, whether you work within an enterprise or you offer a service or product AI-related, into the enterprise, you're going to run up against everything that Corey talks about today. He nutshells a number of concepts that many of our other guests have talked about throughout the years, and he speaks with a uncommon amount of candor in this episode, which I certainly appreciate. That's what we're looking for. Corey also recently had an episode on our new podcast called the AI Consulting Podcast. So about half of you are in the services world. Maybe you have a consulting firm. You're thinking about starting a consulting firm. Corey actually speaks in that episode about how he went from zero to over 100 employees in something like four years. So if you want to listen to that episode and hear his origin story, his what we could call kind of an unlikely origin story about how someone from a totally different business got into AI consulting, you can go to the AI consulting podcast, go ahead and download that, whether it's on Apple podcasts or Spotify or SoundCloud, and you can hear Corey's other episode, which is up live already on the AI consulting podcast. But I don't want to take any more time before diving directly into this episode. Without further ado, this is Corey Jansen of AltML here on the AI and business podcast. So, Corey, we're going to be talking about the realities of applying AI in the enterprise, what you've learned growing a now rather sizable services firm. And some of what you've learned is, I think, to some people might be a bit counterintuitive. This has to do with how people adopt, how we should approach adoption within the enterprise. It might be a little bit different than IT. You spoke off mic in a previous chat about how POCs are so... 2019 or something like that. And I thought, all right, that's a good start to a conversation. What's the way you think about POCs now and their outdatedness and maybe a better way to think about them? It's, and it's not to say that you aren't going to start off per se. It's that the competition for POCs is getting pretty fierce. And with the tool sets that are coming out on the major platforms, you're seeing you know 22-year-old kids being able to come out and talk about themselves as AI experts, because they're just reselling something from AWS, you know, producing that initial POC, we're not, I mean, to do it right is still, it's still difficult, but when a buyer doesn't know what they don't know, anybody can sell it. Anybody can sell that POC. I think a much more fundamental question is 
How many models have you put into operation? How have you dealt with change management? How have you been able to actually receive the same results from a live data set versus your test data set? Those questions aren't asked as much during the sales process in our experience. Well, I mean, look, you're touching on eminently important things here. As far as I can tell, the kiddie pool conversation is, can we build a little sandbox and make the AI do the dance we want it to do? I mean, it's just absolutely, it's borderline a waste of time. I mean, if it can be done super fast and it'll, it'll be a gateway to other conversations maybe, but absolutely really does not correlate to value. Like you said, what's in deployment? What have we actually been able to roll out? What's been able to be integrated and, and used in a fruitful way? But the competition is fierce. And, and as you mentioned, some of the, the buyers, it's by no fault of their own. They're just not necessarily super AI fluent. So they're not necessarily aware of the change management piece, all these other elements beyond the sandbox that make these things succeed or win. So knowing what you're up against, you know, you've gotten to whatever it is, 200 folks now, you've got a bunch of PhDs working for you. You guys have done it well, however you've done it. You're out there competing for POCs with anybody making any promise they can. And, and you, you've probably heard it all. Oh, well, someone else said they could do it for, uh, you know, 10 grand or, you know, whatever the heck you've heard it all. And that is what you're up against. It's what every vendor is up against. How do you come in bringing those, what we could call harsh truths in a way that actually wins the trust and, and, and wins the project because you are up against some steep competition. Well, and you joke about the 10 grand. We have seen 20, right? We have seen <laughs> our, our $200,000 proposal up against the $20,000 proposal and trying to justify that. So it's funny that you throw that out there as if it's this laughably low number, but that's... It's that's almost where not. Yeah, it's almost exactly, not. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> I think, and, and we're approaching the market like if you are coming in selling an ideation session by December 31st, 2021, we figure we're building our plan around the thinking that we should never, ever be coming in straight on ideation. If you're not coming in with the solution in mind, you don't know what you're doing. And so what that means is that you need to actually have deeper industry expertise. If you're coming in selling into insurance, you better understand those top 10 use cases. You better have had experience in working with it. You better understand the difference between PNC versus workers comp versus life versus personal lines. If you don't have that deeper expertise, then you're forced to come back and do the same thing that everybody says and says, hey, you know what? Let's get in a room. Give me some five of your really smart people and tell us what your problems and we'll solve them. Like, yeah, we've all had to do that over the last couple of years, but I think the market's going to evolve. Huh. Okay. Th this is this is interesting. Um, I certainly would say that um, if we can step in and we already speak their lingo, if we can step in and we we already know about and maybe are hands-on involved in a bunch of use cases in different pockets of businesses like theirs, that's undeniably going to have better trained antenna, better questions we can ask, better ways to find those pockets of value. But still, we walk in, maybe this insurance firm you know, in order to reach their transformation vision, in order to do what they're ultimately trying to do, maybe for them, you know, it, it isn't expanding this element of PNC. Maybe it's maybe it's improving, uh, you know, analytics around marketing and sales or whatever. There, there still is some distillation of priorities, but are, are you saying that the winning firms are going to be those that can have a shorter, okay, what's your priority, Mr. Buyer conversation, and then more quickly be able to say recommendation, recommendation, and, and less of a time starting from scratch, you know, going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, which use cases slot into these slots? Like, like how, do you, how do you see that moving forward? Because it feels like we still have to, some, on some level, know what they care about. Yeah, let, let me clarify. I'm okay. sorry. I, 
I'm using this as a mental model for my sales team, as opposed to saying, imagine this goes away, right? Yeah, like yeah. what it means is we need to do our homework to understand if we're going to play insurance is a good example. Let's talk about industrial AI, right? So when you're talking about these industries that have years of data, automation's not new to them, you know, understanding in the, in that business, they call it operational technology or OT. There's like a, a convergence between OT and IT happening. And unless you can talk that language and come in, it's not saying that you're not still sitting down and understanding their problems and picking the right use cases and having the right prioritization method. But to come in with, with a blank slate, I think shows your ignorance, right? Because at the end of the day, all machine learning really is, is an optimization of existing business processes or a reinvention of those business processes. Really, is there anything more that we're doing? We're using data to make decisions and we throw all these buzzwords around it. We make it all complicated, but the core of it is really that. So how do you optimize or how do you improve or how do you otherwise change that business process without understanding the business? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, look, again, I wouldn't argue that all things being equal, company coming in and asking about the priorities of, you know, insurance company X uh, and then service company B doing the same thing. The one that's seen all the dark corners of that industry, AI or not, and, and the one that has hands-on AI experience in the different corners of that industry, just going to have faster, better conversations, faster ability to, to find opportunities. But, you know, it's also tough if you're a services firm, you know, you guys probably have your areas of focus, Corey, but sometimes somebody comes to you and they're, you know, Europe and Canada, I don't know, oil and gas, right? Or, or uh, you know, financial services, or, or maybe there's a retail firm. And, and it, it's tough sometimes as we're growing to say no to business. Do you think that this has to do with, there's two elements that I could see coming to the fore. I love your opinion on both of these. One is, hey, if we're going into a client project, let's make sure we really understand the representative use case space of AI for, for this kind of customer before we get into ideation. Let's not show up dumb. Let's at least know what their major competitors are doing, yada, yada, yada. That's one side. The other side is, let's make sure we say yes to and mostly target companies in this cluster because then our reference experiences will be so strong, we'll naturally win sales. You know, it's tough for people to niche down, but sometimes necessary. What's your take on that? I've given you kind of two ideas that maybe someone could take as an action step, but what's the action step you would advise? Yeah, and, and we've had to do that not necessarily by industry so much. Well, we've we've talked about it by industry, but it's also been by market segment. So we could have a lot of business in the middle market that we, I won't say we turned down. I, I think it's what is your outbound, and, and you touched on it, where are you targeting the enterprise, uh, if, as we did a post-mortem on all our successful, our most successful uh, relationships, and one commonality is that they're all in the enterprise. And so the mid-market is extremely interested in this space. They want to come in. Our experience, and this is just our experience, we're not, I'm not saying this as a, as a fact per se, there often isn't enough data. It's tough to go from $100,000 early POC exploratory work to the seven-figure one or at least we haven't seen that as much in the mid-market, right? You know, we'll pick up the phone when the mid-market reaches in, we'll still respond, but maybe beforehand when we needed to get some experience under our belt, we would have taken those deals. There's a lot that we would politely decline or, you know, maybe you raise that price to the point where they at least say no back to you. But, you know, I think, because you're right, it's not just a simple matter of just saying, oh, we're not going to do this. I mean, Tell that to your your salesperson who has a deal coming in in this exactly. space, right? But we bent over backwards so much to try to do, and in the early days, man, I mean, just outright buying work, right? Like, 
you, know, you had to do that to get, but once you've got, there's a select number of firms that have hundreds of use cases that you've worked on. As you get to that point, you start developing an institutional knowledge, right? And I actually think that this will be our greatest competitive advantage moving forward is how we actually use the data behind those use cases to better inform potential product opportunities, to understand, to better build accelerators for our services clients, and overall to be able to come informed to that first conversation. So by industry, it gets, it gets really interesting when you talk about expansion. Do you go out and, and put together a team of five or six domain experts who understand, say you want to get into pharma. Okay, you know, you hire that person with a decade or two industry experience. You maybe get lucky and get a data scientist who's worked that, yet. You know, you can spend a lot of money building that out in hopes of landing some business. That's tricky. Our approach to that has been partnership and it is more difficult to replicate but I'll tell you, in, in industrial AI, in healthcare, in a few of these areas, it is really, really difficult without being in that space for many, many years. And so if we can't hire that person or bring them on as a consultant to us internally, we've actually set up strategic ventures where we'll go in with that partner in order to target that market segment. So I'd love to touch briefly on partners, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the other insights I got written down. What I see is that you can grow a 12, maybe 20 person company in the mid market. Tough to really, the treadmill there with the deal sizes is really tough to get much, much bigger than that. And also you do run into a lot of challenges in terms of the lower level of AI maturity and fluency in addition to the lower budget. So if you're a smaller firm starting from scratch, often the only place you can win deals is mid market. Like you said, you can't just walk into like an, an Aetna or Wells Fargo and be like, well, I'm a six man band you should hire us, right? It's, it's really hard. So you end up winning mid-market and you end up on that treadmill. I see that the companies closing the bigger deals when they're newer are almost always going through a partner channel. And you know, when I think partner, you might be thinking something different, so I'm interested. But when I look at the companies I'm thinking about, AWS, NVIDIA, you know, increasingly like the, the data robots of the world are starting partner programs. But you know, we think about the big boys, uh, NVIDIA, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, whatever. They have partner ecosystems. If we can get certified and level up, often they're going to be able to hand us a company we'd never get on our own, ever, 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 ever. And most of sales work has been done, and we got to kiss the ring to make sure we keep that relationship. But that's our, our trigger to actually winning real deal projects so we can grow, grow, grow a company with, with bigger margins because we can work in the enterprise where projects are substantial. That's what I'm seeing. Can't win anything except for mid-market when we're small, unless we do partner, and then we can win the big guys. When you say partnership, were you implying those bigger tech players, were you implying other kinds of enterprise partnerships? What did you mean? I'm glad you clarified there. I think those partnerships are, are important. And we spend a ton of time, especially on, on, on the platforms of really, like you say, doing what you can to make sure that you're part of their ecosystem. I was meaning something different. I was meaning partnerships to get to domain expertise. Okay. So our business model will utilize, sometimes they're a first customer, Sometimes there's just a strategic partnership to be able to get access to that. Well, you know, more often than not, we're actually, we're doing work together. You can only get, I'll share, it might be easiest if I share through example. Uh, great, our great. large partnership is through a, a pension fund um, in my part of the world. Uh, the, the name of the company is AIMCO. Uh, so they, but 120 billion or so under management. As we did some initial work with them, this POC work that I've been, you know, <laughs> you know, we went and we had to prove ourselves. We had to go in the door and we, we need, we needed to prove ourselves. Right. As we did that, what it turned into or evolved into over a period of time was actually a strategic joint venture 
we're building products around AI and institutional asset management with the assumption that the problems that we see inside this organization would also exist in a broader sense. And so to get access to a portfolio manager that runs hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, you can't just call these guys up. But by being able to have this unique relationship where we go in and we build together, that allows us unique access that no outside vendor would be able to get at. And so then you get access to data that otherwise you wouldn't be able to see and can work alongside those teams. Once you then have that industry expertise combined with the data science, that's when the magic happens. And so now we're doing that across, we're doing that in wellness, we're doing that in industrial AI, we're doing that in a number of different industries. Now, I know what you're thinking though, that's a messy business model. Yeah, it is. Right? You <laughs> no, know, your, like, your candor is admirable. Your candor is admirable. Anyway, go on. It, it, well, the data largely exists in larger organizations, right? As a startup, you either, you know, as far as I see it, you either have people, you know, you have a, a few people that have deep experience in an industry that go off and hire a bunch of, of ML engineers and, and raise some money and then build a specific product. I didn't have that luxury. So we set out and this venture studio like model, like we would describe ourselves internally as, you know, a studio for applied AI. So we're building solutions for organizations. Um, we're building products. And sometimes we're spinning off different companies yeah, that can come yeah, out of it. Yeah. Now, this isn't a model that the VCs like. In fact, no. they mostly hate it. Oh, I um, can imagine. But Andreessen Horowitz has written on this really well, talking about emerging business models within AI. And we'd like to think that we've actually got a model that just might work. Yeah, well, I mean, man, there's, this is a, there's a Cambrian explosion happening here. And, and you guys are... Uh spinning out some species of jellyfish and beetles. And, uh, you know, we're going to see how it all turns out. But uh, hopefully you'll have a substantial um, take on the fossil record, Corey. I'm, I'm rooting for you. To clarify your partnership deal here, you know, and of course, this I'm glad you were able to disclose this. I, I realize maybe some of these things aren't disclosable, but your, your insurance, this sort of partnership relationship with financial services firm is, is well known, this AIMCO. Partnership implying they're bought in on some level to, to kind of your business itself, or you form a kind of joint venture with them so that there's a level of trust when it comes to that access and co-building. Is this what you meant by partnership? That's exactly it. And, and it, it is publicly disclosed that we have a joint venture with this particular asset wow. management firm, right? But here's what that means. It means uh, you also have to give up something. Yes. So exclusivity is going to enter into the table. Like you can only dance with one partner at one time. And if, if you've chosen to go to the dance with this one person, then, then, yeah. then you're making that. But it, if you take a step back and say, okay, well, you need unique data sets, you need the domain expertise, you need to solve for the, and then you need the team. And clearly you actually need to understand actually in terms of how you actually run an AIML project. Okay. So not that that's a comprehensive list, but all those things would be requirements for success. I think this is how we've taken to actually fill that domain expertise piece of it. Right. So. I could go out and try to hire a portfolio manager that runs, you know, $500 million. I can't afford that person. I can't afford a, a doctor that makes 750 grand a year. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't put that person on my payroll right now. I just, I, I can't justify it. So through this partnership and through shared upside in terms of, yes, yeah. shared equity involvement or something more, you know, like they would call it quote unquote strategic, we've chosen to go down that path so that we can align interest in order to get access to that. Well, look, I'll say this much for the listeners. I think this is a really interesting, and, and from my experience, having arguably too many conversations with AI service providers, although I enjoy them and learn from them, 
haven't really seen a lot of this. And as you had said, this is kind of a model and an approach. And one thing that it, it does make clear, and I'd like to put an exclamation point for listeners, is that accessing the big companies, having those bigger projects, it's not, hey, I'm a six-person firm, Wells Fargo, work with me. It's like the, the level of wheel and dealing that you've done and the level of kind of ring kissing that the folks that are working through an NVIDIA or an AWS have to do, it is a giving up of something, but that's how we access the big folks and that's how we can get access to the data and grow ourselves and in your case, grow your studio. So yeah, really important uh, for the listeners. Well, well, Dan, can I say something that might really tick off your listeners? Oh, here? I'd love to. Yeah. You know, because this, well, I say take them off, but also maybe save some pain. Sure. It took me three years to come to the conclusion that land and expand in the AI space does not work. Yeah, this is big. This is really, really big. So please explain what you mean by land and expand and what your alternative and lesson learned was, because that statement by itself is going to be counterintuitive to a great many listeners. What do you mean by it? Okay. So, and, and quite often we talk about a wedge strategy, you, you know, you buy some business, you do whatever to get in the door yep. so you can be in that first project. Then you get, so once you prove that you get the next project and on and on and on. So that wedge in the door, then once you get in, eventually that turns into something big. Now yep. we have not been able to get that to work. And here, here's how many of our relationships, it seems like, especially in the early days happen. You go in, you try do a whiteboarding session, you try to sell something. So you do some initial exploratory work, small dollar value, let's say 100 to 250K to try to get in the door, right? And maybe it's even less than that. Maybe you're just going, okay, let's do, let's do some feasibility studies for 50K. Like it's, it, it's a nothing kind of job, right? You're trying to get to the next piece. But then if you don't know what you're actually solving for, it's really tough to, within that statement of work, understand what the pilot's going to cost, what operationalization is going to look like. Like, you could put a quote out there, but all of a sudden, once you say it's going to be a million bucks, they go, well, a million bucks, how do we even know what we're going to get from this? So you've got this weird dynamic where you come in, you get your first contract, you get your first statement to work. Maybe you go for a full MSA at that point, but then it's like, then you're stuck in legal for four months. So, so you do a quick bit. And then once you get that proof of concept done, then all of a sudden you're talking about and, and you're, you're back to negotiating, well, what would the pilot look like? And then, so you're spending a month or two on that pilot. And it goes on and on and on. And for two or three months worth of actual ML work, you've got 12 to 18 months of negotiation. And I might be exaggerating slightly, but even if it's one to two months work for nine to 12 months worth of negotiation, it's painful. Our alternative, and you've written some great stuff, Dan, I, I, I don't mind saying, I feel like you've articulated what we encounter in real life. Not that you're not real life, I didn't, that came out the wrong way. <laughs> But th there's this trade-off of the transformation side and really building out AI maturity yep. versus that short-term, I need value now, exactly. right? Exactly. Right? So we would say that it needs to be aligned with the overall strategy. So once you get in to try to get in at that mid-level of an organization and sell and sell and sell, they'll never be able to get to the point at least in right now in the companies we're dealing with, it doesn't feel like they, it. Yeah, they don't have the budget to to make it a worthwhile business because you can keep on selling hundred thousand dollar proof of concepts. Man, I, I can't make the numbers work. That's a so hard business. Maybe, yeah, that's a hard maybe business. Maybe someone else is better at than I. Unless, like you say, hey, if you're a, a smaller shop, maybe you can make it go. But exactly. you've still, you, you've still got a big issue in terms of utilization there, right? And we can get into that side. Instead, I think yes, you need to build trust, but it needs to come from from the C suite or that exec, you know, that EVP that. And once you get in down below, you need to then go right up to 
often to the CEO or depending how big a company, that EVP that at least has the ear of the CEO and understanding their strategy and how data actually ties towards that is the next step in the battle. That would be the next point of contact, not necessarily contract two or three. Yeah, well, I, well, uh, I mean, look, this is really, really an interesting take. You know, we think about this in a lot of ways. You're talking about it in terms of roles, which is a cool lens here. The way that we see it is that if we don't have a strategic anchor for a project, in other words, a three to five year goal, uh, a transformation vision, a core differentiator for the company, a key thrust that leadership really cares about, if there's nothing that we can like the leadership, like higher up people, you said EVP, whatever, that level of folks can grab onto and we can grab onto and we can tie this project to that. Unless we have that, we're not really talking about a project that has a future. So that, that's something we, we, we beat the drum on a lot because we're going to run into these challenges and iteration is going to be new for people and, and it's going to be frustrating. They're not going to push through unless we have that, that higher level buy-in and, and all that stuff. The other part of this is having a roadmap. So can we build a level of capability to get to a certain amount of ROI but that naturally is followed by a next wave of capability and ROI. And unless leadership knows we're going to build some layers here, unless, unless we're building up towards something that leadership actually cares about, those layers are not going to stack. And we're, we're not going to be able to access the next level. We're not going to, we call it like picking a pizza slice. You find one part of the business where you can layer capability and then find ROI and the next layer, find ROI. It's tough to do. And what you're saying is that the thing people need to bear in mind is that that's not just latching to strategic goals. It's latching to the people who own those strategic goals. Exactly. It's winning over the CEO. It's winning over the CIO, right? And then having the main contacts that we made that initial sale with. And I mostly agree with those. I, I, I put on one clarification. I Go for it, please. The project has come up. I guess when I say that the, the land and expand won't work, I guess I'm doing that as project one to project two to project three. What I'm saying is that project-based work We've found that to be really, really hard because of these contractual roadblocks that I alluded to. Rather, it's getting with the project to prove yourself. But where this actually matters is to actually turn that into a program, a program or a practice within the organization. So it there is a trade-off between AI maturity and near-term wins. This is different than other IT projects, right? Like by getting to a program, that then gives you permission to actually have a portfolio of various use cases that you take on. That is where we need to get to. And educating our partners and our clients on that piece of it is probably what I spent. Well, it's the hardest part of my job. And, and it's why I don't mind bringing this up. In the, I mean, it's not like it's a trade secret or anything like this out there. It's yeah, like, yeah organizations that realize they need a program, it needs to be aligned with the strategy, it needs to be on the checklist of the associate EVP. You know, it's easy to say these things. It's hard to put way them in. Hard, way hard, right? way hard, yeah. But then think, here's where it's a win. Imagine have 10 use cases then where you need to hit a few singles before you can swing for the fences, right? The last thing you want to do is take on that first use case, it not go anywhere, and then you're dead, and then it's impossible to recover from. But by having that portfolio, that's when the magic happens. That's where you can get that, that you get some near-term ROI. And we're not saying that ROI needs to necessarily pay for everything in you know, the first quarter. Like the hurdle rates, I mean, they need to see it's going to be in the next year or two. Sure, not sure. Five years, right? Yep. But if you go in, say you hit a couple singles, that then buys internally. Hopefully you've shown the trust that you know what you're doing. But then that then might get you the permission to say, listen, I'm going to swing for the fences on this one. There's a lot of technical risk here, but why don't we take on this? Now, we can take that as part of that portfolio of projects, right? I don't think we would ever be able to pitch that as a project on its own. 
but in combination and looking at the ROI on the overall program, we've had a lot of success. Yeah. I mean, this is super important stuff. There's a couple past interviews that resonate with a good deal of what you're articulating here. But yeah, the idea that, you know, this one pocket project can spin into a next one. You know, you use the, the term a program within the organization. We've heard the term like a mandate. You know, it's, it's, something, it's something from on high. It's part, of a, it's part of a track for strategy. And that track is what we can roll forth new capability with. And some of those projects are going to die in the vine. Some are going to win. But if we're all excited about marching the phalanx in this one direction, then, hey, at least we can, we can move. And we got to accept that, yeah, that, that's the way it needs to be. Well, can we talk about killing projects? Yeah. You talk about there. I think that, so this is like, listen, and, and it's tough to know what the audience here when you, I know there's some, you know, we, a lot of us are, are in the business. Some are in, are buying our, um, the services from, yep, from yep. AI years. The discipline to know when to kill a project, I think is going to be a massive differentiator wow. in the industry because you know what? It's, Hey, I've never met an AI project that I couldn't say, hey, you know what? Yeah, just uh, let's add another couple, another quarter on this. Let's gather a little bit more data. Let's keep on working. We can we can get that up from a 72% accuracy to a 78% or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. When we've killed, pro- and, and it's actually not killing projects. It's pausing that project and providing the right recommendation to say, here are the changes that we need to make in terms of our processes to acquire that data. And, and maybe we'll come back to this next quarter or next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like lots of consultants would just rather say like, oh, crap, I got this statement to work. Man, we just, I need to keep my team busy. I can't kill this. And so they keep on working on That's it. so hard. Well, man, look, I've had frank conversations, Corey, with people in exactly that position. And often, well, the partner model I was talking about with AWS or NVIDIA, you know, they've handed you this bank. And this bank wants this chatbot. And by golly, you know, it's not a great idea. But yeah, everybody wants the chatbot. But you can't, yeah. Luckily, that phase is mostly over. Uh, and we tried to poke as many holes in that, in that balloon on its way up as we possibly could as a small company. But, um, but you know, whatever. They, they want some conversational interface thing. And we can't reach people at a high enough level or convince them that this is a bad idea. We want to keep a good relationship with Amazon, I guess. Amazon's hoping they're going to keep using this, I don't know, this software license or whatever they're paying Amazon for. So we plug away, you know, and we all kind of know how this is going to end, at least at least us on the team. But what you're saying is that, and, and, and that's kind of a unique situation. The partner situation might end up being a little different. The incentives are tough there. But what you're getting at is that when to kill or pivot a project and how to kill and pivot a project are like core skills in the AI services space. So this is like master skill stuff. You know, you can talk about it and it's easy for us to say here right now when we're not looking at the, the hard financial numbers and I'm dealing with this, this came in right now. We have a, if you don't have a number of use cases to work on, if you don't, I mean, I think this is the state of where we're at right now, right? If, and, and I think this is going to go away in the next few years as the market matures. But if you haven't gone in and really looked at a variety of use cases and go, you're looking for ROI, you're looking if there's enough data and you're putting those two things together to go like, okay, do we think we have a Goldilocks use case here, right? More often than not, the use case that comes from that executive sponsor, the first idea that they think they have, I don't know, man, what's your, what's your batting record on that? Ours is pretty bad. You don't have to be the bad guy. I'll be the bad guy. One of the many war drums I beat, I'm just, I'm just busy banging away over here, Corey, but one of them is uh, the first use case or project idea and the first benchmark for measuring its success 
are both wrong. And there's an art and a science to pulling in, you know, you mentioned kind of the ideation sessions or you're trying to steer away from, but on some level, we've got to take the intent you have, hopefully the strategic intent you have, and actually show you the reality of AI, the reality of your business, and then properly guide that motivation towards something that actually would have a chance of success. So I'm completely with you. And the art and science is how to tactfully bend intent with education in a way that feels like co-creation. And, and that's an art and a science. That's it. And I will say we're batting a thousand when we've been able to build trust and actually use our methodology internally for a, a bunch. And we've touched on a bunch of these pieces in a portfolio of projects and, and, and the various rubrics in terms of prioritization. And, and, and I'm not saying the ideation sessions, there's never a place for them. Like there's going to be some I'm saying the more mature clients are saying like, I've seen that before. I don't need to do another one. Right. And it costs me a lot of money to have these really five expensive people in a room. You know what, Dan, it's about trust. Yeah. It's about trust because everyone thinks you're selling them snake oil. And unfortunately there are some companies that are selling snake oil. So how do you, you know, getting in the door and being able to have a real frank conversation about how data and AI aligns with their real strategy and how you actually allow this to, to reduce costs, you know, open up new lines of business, reduce risk, you know, or otherwise create ROI or, and Hey, we could probably spend a whole hour talking about how we actually look at ROI and measuring ROI, right? This is the paradox. We've got this. And, and again, I love, I mean, for those listeners that haven't, uh, what was the name of your article here on AI business models where you bring, yeah, you yeah, build yeah. up this quadrant, um, your, your AI project quadrant, right? Yep. AI business models. I, I think you just call it comparing five AI business That's models, exactly right? It. So for listeners that haven't read this, you'd have to read this thing. Because to me, this articulates perfectly the trade-off. But I guess the one thing that I would add to this in our experience is, is that ironically, to actually to get to ROI, you need to have a mindset around that long-term maturity that needs to be infused back in. Like, you know, we yeah. look at these in two sides of the access, yeah. but they actually the interplay back and forth. The only way you get to the good quadrant, which you kind of had like the impossible zone, yeah, right? Yeah, for, for, for a first project, you can't flick one project on and get there is what I'm getting. Yeah, at. yeah, yeah. no, you're right. You're right. I, yeah. I think it's impossible in your first project, right? Yeah. And so that's why these ideas of, 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 of mandates or programs, making sure that we've got the, the trust in the organization to say, hey, yeah, we're going to kill projects that don't work out. We're going to look at a variety of use cases. We're going to always be measuring back and forth to be able to actually take um, take on the right projects at the right time. And we're going to measure that ROI over the portfolio. Man, I mean, it sounds so easy. And once you have an organization that gets it, or once you've got that visionary CEO that is open to listening to this and understanding that they probably can't do it internally, yeah. they, they can't do it internally. They need to have a, a, you know, a partnership approach. Oh, and then you can actually get to the work of doing <laughs> machine learning. Exactly. <laughs> then you can write some models. We're talking about all this stuff before we've even popped the hood and looked at the data, right? A hundred percent. I mean, and again, you know, we, we talk to firms that have grown and are substantial and it's these catalyst skills, what we refer to as kind of catalyst skills. If you're going to be an AI catalyst. You're going to make change happen. You're going to get to the good quadrant. You're going to unlock real ROI. We're not going to play games here. If you're really going to catalyze change. It's these conversations, it's this depth of trust that's actually going to get you there. And people think they need the PhD. Sure you do. But by golly, if you can't have these conversations and bend things in this direction, these soft skills, these strategic uh, paragoggles, one thing you mentioned was that it's all about trust. I think that's so right because I heard it once, one of our, uh, our other Emerge Plus guys on a conversation had said that 
there's kind of the kitty table at the dinner table where like they'll let you do a little band-aid toy project or whatever. But in order to actually start to inform strategy and get serious ideas from the big deal people in the company, you kind of need to be pulled up to that adult table. And that's a level of trust, a level of credibility. You've got to got to be able to earn and, and get your way there. And, and you're really doubling down on that in a way that I think basically nobody here can, can uh, deny or walk away from. So many things. I, I think there are going to be whole articles that spill out of this conversation, Corey. So. Well, then, and, and as an industry, I think this is where we need to get together. And, and you know, you, you, meant, you mentioned the, the plus, and I don't know how long I've been a member. Actually, I don't even know what, what is a part of plus versus not because I've been there for a while. I, I just, you know, I, I would just highly recommend, I'm, listen, I think our biggest problem is actually educating those in traditional industries about these concepts. And so, you know, I think that you're the only, you probably write about this better than anybody else that I've found anywhere out there. I mean, you're talking to more people. I actually think that there's a, there's a lot to be said for being part of the community, right? To be able to do this because, hey, it's, sometimes we might be competition in various markets back sure. and forth. But you know what? This is a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. And the more we can get, like what we don't need is more articles coming out saying, hey, 17% of, you know, only 17% of AI projects succeeded, right? Like Wall Street Journal is going to put out something like that next quarter, yep. next no doubt And you know, yeah, it is hard, but these core topics, these meaty, meaty discussions are what we need to talk about. And so I, I definitely commend you within Plus for, for talk, because I, I feel like all these things that we talk about internally, I don't read about it anywhere else other than 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 by yourself. Yeah, well, hey, I appreciate that. A warm recommendation from somebody out in the field growing a very fast-growing company in, in extremely innovative ways means the world. I would say that's what we're trying to do, Corey. You know, we're trying to cover, yes, okay, a certain percent fail, but what are the succeeding projects doing right? You know, what are, what are the vendors and the enterprise folks, we talked to both sides, doing when stuff aligns and we get some damn value? And can we distill that, boil it down? That's what we're trying to do. In that area. And Corey, I know that's all we had for time on this episode. Man, I know you and I could just go on forever on literally any one of these topics. There's like, you know, another hour to go. But I want to sincerely appreciate you for being able to share some of your thoughts on kind of the reality of going to market. This has been an awesome episode. Yeah, thanks so much, Dan. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Corey for his high degree of candor in speaking about all the uh, hurdles and challenges of actually rolling a smaller AI project into something substantial in the enterprise world. I hope all of you benefited from it. I appreciate everybody who's listening now, who's listened all the way through to the end of this episode. And again, as I mentioned in the intro, Corey recently went into his origin story of his business. What did he learn in terms of hard business lessons going from zero to over 100 team members for his AI consulting firm uh, in less than four years? And that episode is live on the AI Consulting Podcast. So go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or SoundCloud. I really appreciated Corey's candor in this other episode too. And if you liked his insights here, I think you're going to like his insights there as well. And if you are in the consulting world, I think it's going to be an invaluable interview. I think it, it was it was one of our best thus far in that new show. So the AI Consulting Podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc. Make sure to check that out. And otherwise, I look forward to catching you right here in our next episode of the AI and Business Podcast.